Well, last week I told you we're going to wrap up this work series by pressing you to not be so quick to talk about changing your job until you first wrestle with changing your attitude about that job. And so last week we looked at Titus chapter 2 and we saw how Christians of all people should be different in the workplace because you have a new master, a new assignment, a new power, a new hope that should change how you work without ever changing where you work. And so today I want to take this same theme and press it a little further, getting you to think about how working for King Jesus, that's the phrase I've tried to use all through this series, we work for King Jesus, how working for King Jesus can set you free to work in a radically new way because you have a radically different motivation that has nothing to do with the job circumstances or your supervisor or your co-workers or your compensation or even your personal sense of calling and passion to that particular job. As human beings, we tend to make those the factors as to whether I can have a joyful heart and do this with my whole heart. The circumstances, the supervisor, the co-workers, the compensation and my personal sense of did this, this match my calling. All that's pushed off the table. Don't hear me saying it doesn't matter at all, but it shouldn't be the number one thing. When you understand you work for King Jesus, it can set you free to work differently because you have a different motivation that is not tied to any of that. And so to get our heads around this, we're going to dig into 1 Peter chapter 2. So go there in your Bibles, 1 Peter chapter 2. I'm going to start reading in verse 9. 1 Peter chapter 2, and I want to ask you to stand in honor of God's word. 1 Peter chapter 2. But you, believers, are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy, beloved. I beg you, as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when, notice this, not if, my friends, when they speak against you as evildoers. Not if, when. When they speak against you as evildoers, they may buy your good works, which they observe. How can they observe your good works? Look at me a minute. Because you're right there next to them. This is why God did not intend for all of you to start Christian companies and to hire everybody in our church so that none of you have to hear the F word. That's not the goal. Wrong goal. He says that your conduct, which is honorable, right out there among the Gentiles, that your good works, which they may observe, watch what it'll do. Watch how God can use your good works that they observe up close. Glorify God in the day of visitation. Two possibilities of what that means. Commentators differ. It can mean, A, on the day when God judges the entire world and he's going to, they'll say, oh, they're going to glorify God. And they'll say, she was right. He was right. I knew there was different. That message was true. Or, this one excites me more, glorify God in the day of his visitation when he visits them personally with saving grace because of how you were different in that workplace. Who hasn't known someone who said, oh, I worked with a Christian and I made fun of her. I made fun of her. I made made his life so hard. And then God gave them grace. And they looked back and they thanked and glorified God for that believer that was up close. We're not supposed to be huddled up in safe Christian places. We're supposed to be right out there where they may observe your good works. Verse 13, if this is his calling, how are you going to do that? Well, he's going to start to tell you. Verse 13, therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of men for the Lord's sake, because... 
Because the people asking you to do this are so reasonable and so worthy of it? No. For the Lord's sake. Because we work for who? That's right. For the Lord's sake. Whether to the king as supreme or to governors or to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. Verse 15. For this is the will of God. Look at me. Books are written. Blogs unending are written. And Christians fuss and carry on constantly wanting to know the will of God. I want to know the will of God for my life. I want to know the will of God. I want to know the will of God. You want to know the will of God? Read the word of God. It's full of the will of God. You got plenty to work on. For this is the will of God. What? That by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Here's what I love. That word put to silence in the Greek literally is the word muzzle. Wouldn't you like to muzzle them sometimes? Well, the answer isn't to yell back at them or grab their face. It's you live so differently. with. And here's what he's actually saying. We live in a day now where it's just very open with, with homosexuality, right? These are not the worst sinners. They're just like us. But stay with me. Have you not seen now that homosexuality is so much more open, there's nothing to be ashamed of, that here's one of the biggest things we see happening. People no longer think it's wrong. Why? Because they say things like, I've got a next door neighbor and that's one. She's one of the nicest people you'd ever want to meet. I work with and I don't deny it. These are not wicked people any more wicked than us. And it's it's caused everyone to realize, oh, guess what? The same thing can work for Christians. If Christians are all huddled up, the world can keep thinking you're 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 wicked. You're violent. You're hateful. You're angry. And then you start working there and they're like, this is shattering all my categories I had about Christians. Why? Because a Christian worked next to me and was so loving and filled with good works and worked so hard with, I totally disagree with her Christianity, but I cannot say anything about the way she loves other people and the way she lives. That's what's supposed to happen as we're out there in the workplace. For this is the will of God, verse 15, that by doing good works, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free. He's talking about us. Jesus has set us free. Not to free to take care of yourself and indulge yourself as free, yet not using your liberty as a cloak for vice, but as servants, we don't serve ourselves, of God. Because we work for who? King Jesus. But as servants of God, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Servants, just stick in there, employees. Be submissive to your employer with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. Oh, here's one more example, right? I say this a lot, but it's because it's so true. You don't read your Bible and saying, I just wish it was relevant for today. If it would just say something that would help me. Is this not what we face? You're like, I would work hard if my supervisor was reasonable. In the Greek, literally, it could be translated for those who are reasonable and kind. We all wish we had someone reasonable. But because she's not reasonable, I don't have to have a good attitude. Not just for those that are kind. But when you have someone unreasonable and unkind. And then it goes on to say exactly what sometimes you face. Not only the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. It can be translated cruel. You got someone who is harsh, cruel, unreasonable, unkind. And you're sp- still supposed to work hard and be the best worker there with the best attitude. Why? Because you don't work for this unkind, harsh, cruel supervisor. You work for who? King. Will that be different? Would that cause you to stand out? See, Christians think they're supposed to get a soapbox and start preaching on their employer's time. Or they're supposed to rail against some of the wickedness of our world in a way that puts everybody off. Let me give you a better suggestion. Be the hardest worker there with the best attitude. And see if that doesn't get their attention. Be submissive to your masters with fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. Verse 19, for this is commendable if because of conscience towards God. So why are you doing it? Not for the supervisor, not for XYZ company. You are mindful of God because you work for who? Out of conscience towards God, you endure grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good, 
and suffer for it. Could that happen? Could you actually do the right thing or do something good and actually end up suffering for it? This is not a new thing. He's talking about this hundreds of years ago. When you do good and suffer for it, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called. Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. Who committed no sin, nor was guile found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, did not threaten. But committed himself to him who judges righteously. Who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. That we having died to sins might live for righteousness. By whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray. But now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The word of the Lord. And all God's people said. You may be seated. Oh, knowing that you have a new master and a new assignment as you head into the workplace can keep you from being blown all around by the winds of performance reviews and bosses who do or don't treat you well and co-workers who might or might not respect you. There's so much you cannot control out there in the workplace. But when you settle in, When you settle in with your new master and you get a hold of your new assignment, it can set you free from so much of the workplace drama that is swirling all around you. You don't have to get sucked into it by everybody else when you really understand, oh, wait a minute, I've got a new master. I've got a new assignment to adorn the doctrine of God. I've got power that these other unbelievers don't. I've got the grace of God going with me. I've got a hope outside of this job in this world. My identity is not wrapped in this. I don't go with my hand out needing not only a paycheck, but affirmation to even keep going. We of all people should be the ones that can keep from getting sucked into the workplace drama and have a freedom so much of christianity is about freedom john eight thirty two, he says you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you well, we've been talking about truths about the workplace that should set you free to work differently so what would some of this new freedom look like in the workplace number one working for king jesus sets you free to worship god through your work Instead of trying to fulfill yourself in it. Working for King Jesus sets you free to worship God through your work. So what would it look like? Here we're wrapping up this series. What does it mean to worship God through your work? Does that mean to sing a little praise song under your breath all day long at work? Well it might. But let me give you some more impactful suggestions than that. To worship God in your work means to give God honor. By obeying him in every task you perform at that job. Knowing that when you do it with all your heart, whether someone's watching or not, whether someone says thank you or not, whether someone recognizes you in the quarterly meeting or not, it is worship to the one true living God. It is pleasing to the one true living God. In other words, your goal in that job is to make much of him Not try to see how much money and power and fame you can make of your own name. It's not about us. That's what Peter is saying in this passage. Notice how verse 9, he reorients our thinking that it is about who we are and who we do it for far more than what we do when we get to the workplace. He reorients our thinking about us. Look at verse 9. But you're a chosen generation. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. Now see if this phrase sounds familiar if you were here last week. His own special people. Exact same four words from Titus chapter 2. Paul and Peter are talking the same way about the workplace. You're his own special people. And then verse 9 has a henna clause that tells us what is this all about? Royal priesthood, holy nation, chosen people, own special people. To what end? Did you stand around and say, aren't we great? That 
that in order that so that that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So right here I want to press you to think about what would it look like to be his own special people in the workplace. Out there in the workplace. Well here's the first thing I want you to think about a little more carefully. This word calling gets talked about a lot. What am I called to? I got to find my calling. What's my calling? Get this. You, as a Christian, have been called to Christ more than you've been called to any particular job or field of service. Get over yourself. Some of you, to the point of paralysis, are overanalyzing and spiritualizing this whole sense of calling. What's my personal calling? What's my personal calling? You're called to Christ. I'm basing this on the New Testament. 51 times the New Testament uses the word calling. And 46 of the 51 times are in reference to calling people to Jesus Christ. To become followers of Jesus Christ. To become Christians. That's your calling. That's the holy people, royal priesthood, chosen, special. It's to Christ. You've been called to Jesus Christ. Oh, how I wish more Christians could get a hold of this. When you hear the word called... Stop thinking so much about a particular vocation and think more about a relationship with Jesus Christ. You are called to follow, love, and know Jesus Christ. And to be caught up in who you are in Him and why you do what you do. And stay with me. And then you can head into the workplace and work just about any job to the glory of God. Stop. We've got people that are just paralyzed with, oh, but I don't want to waste my life. And here's what I think some people are thinking. And I've seen videos like this online by well-meaning Christian ministries. And I think it's terrible. Here you are standing before God. And this deep resonant voice says, let me show you what your calling was and what you should have done if you'd been praying harder. Here's your calling and how I gifted you. And here's what you would have done, but instead you wasted your life in that job. But come on in anyway. But come in sad, loser. Never going to happen. Never going to happen. Your calling is to Jesus Love him with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and head into the workplace with that heart and you will glorify God in any job you choose. Calling is to Christ. God is far more concerned with how you do your job and who you take with you into the workplace than what career path you ultimately choose. Christians have made this far too complicated. All worked up over calling, calling. What's my primary calling? Your primary calling is to follow Jesus, know Jesus, love Jesus, and you will not waste your life. That, that could be freeing for some of you. You won't waste your life. And that's why we get minimal guidance in the New Testament as to any specific job. He could have said there's, there's certain fields and industries stay away from. Stay away from. If you really want to glorify God, it needs to be in a serving, caring industry. Go medical, go teaching, go silence. We get minimal guidance on specific jobs. And instead, we get things like Paul the Apostle in Colossians chapter 3, verse 23, saying, Whatever you do. Work heartily as unto the Lord and not to men. I can see somebody in that meeting raising their hand saying, but Paul, because people are people, which job should I actually take and what career path should I get on and begin to pursue? And I picture the pause of Paul, head cocked, furrowed brow. How do I make this any more clear? Whatever. You do. I don't care what you... I mean, don't run a porn ring or a brothel, but pretty much I don't care what you do. Do you understand English? Whatever, whatever you do. Work heartily. It's not what you do. It's how you do it and who you do it for. And you'll be a part of God. God being proclaimed and adorning the doctrine of God and muzzling the foolishness of ignorant men and women and being a part of what God is wanting to do. You can be a part of what God is wanting to do in our world without joining our staff, without becoming a missionary, but heading into the workplace 
thinking about who you do it for and how you're going to work more than what. Number, and the second thing I want to unpack here under this first point of worshiping through your work. Get over this paralysis of calling, but here's something I want to just, if I can, explode. You don't have to love what you do to worship God through it. Oh, I said it. Mic drop. You don't have to love what you do to worship God through it. We've got people thinking, I would work heartily under the Lord if I loved what I did. And I would want to do it as I'm doing. The Bible doesn't talk that way. Our world has run amok with this whole, you got to love what you do. Don't settle for less. Keep searching. Chase your dream. Walk away from a well-paying job and become a dancer who's poor. Chase your dream because you want to do what you love. You want to wake up every day saying, I love this. I'm poor, but I love this. That is not biblical. That is Steve Jobs poster boy, Apple founder, poster boy for this whole concept. He told a Stanford graduating class, quote, you've got to find what you love. The only way to do great work is to love what you do. That is a lie. Can you do great work because you love who you do it for? Oh, give me a hearty yes. Because who do we work for? Do you love King Jesus? Is he worthy of your best effort? Can you do it in a job you don't like? Get out of here. Short sermon. No, just kidding. (laughs) But oh my goodness, we got to get over this, right? Our culture has confused, I do believe, hobbies with jobs. So all young men want to have a band. Who didn't? I had a guitar too. Get over yourself and have a group of friends that play on the weekend and go find a real job that will pay you. Every girl wants to be a dancer, but you'll be poor. There'll be a few people that can dance and make a living on that. Dance around the house right before you leave for your real job. <laughs> you, know, you, you may want to rebuild Mustangs. Do it on the weekend. You may want to paint. You may want to do any number of delightful things. Hobbies. Every now and then that might converge. Here's what's funny. But as soon as your hobby becomes your job, guess what? You find out what parts of it you don't like. Work is hard. Work is burdensome. Work has a measure of uh, about it. And we've got a culture in paralysis because they've been told, find out what you love. You've got to be doing what you love. Don't settle for less. And it's been tragic. And it's not biblical. The whole you got, you think about this. The whole you got to do what you love is very focused on who? As Christians, are we supposed to be focused on us? Loving God and loving others. Can you love God and love others through a job that isn't your favorite job? Yes. 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 So we've got a generation that's, that's struggling because they think they're supposed to hold out. Hold out until you find the perfect job that matches your gifts and desires and passions of what you love. And all it's done, honestly, is caused this generation to flounder more than any other and to refuse to keep from landing anywhere long. Because as soon as you get there, if you don't love it, you think, i got to hit the chute and get out. Get out. Steve Jobs said, don't settle. I could waste my whole life. i got to find what I love. And here's what I want to tell you, especially if you're young, that is not understood well until you live life a little longer. Here's the problem with this. you got to do what you love. If you're young and you just sit in a coffee shop thinking, what do I love? You don't know enough to know what you love. You haven't done enough do you realize there's something you might love and you don't know it till you do it? And you, stay with me, and you don't know it till you persevere in doing it. Don't just do it a little and get out at the first hard thing. I would say it to you this way. Passion often follows mastery of a skill or a job. And you start having passion for something you never thought you would have passion for. But as you got into that, just because you needed to be there or you chose to take it, you start thinking, how could this be better? How could we improve this? How can I really use my gifts? How can I, and I want to do it to the glory of God. And all of a sudden, it wasn't your goal. You find yourself thinking, I love parts of this. I love thinking about this. I see gifts that I didn't think I had. I see myself making a difference. Passion often follows mastery of a skill or a job and that takes time 
If you don't stay with anything long, you might never ever really discover what you love. We don't know ourselves well enough. You can't sit in a coffee shop and comb over your life and say, what do I love? And that's what I'm going to get on a path for. But the world is, I mean, this flies in the face of Queen Oprah Winfrey, right? I mean, oh my goodness, she's the other one that's just touted this forever. Oprah Winfrey says, quote, I've come to believe that each of us has a personal calling that she is unique as a fingerprint. Please stop. Well, I mean, what does that do? You're like, oh, what is my snowflake like no other fingerprint specific calling? And I don't want to miss it. What is it? I don't know, but there's one. One. That's the whole thing with there's one person you're supposed to marry. Stop that. You could marry any number of wretched sinners and you'll still need the grace of God. <laughs> Just get started with one. Make sure they're a believer or there's really no hope. And even believers will struggle. Go ahead. Pick one. Are they a believer who's changing, that's committed to Jesus Christ? Stop this. Who's my soulmate? No, there's a sinner out there somewhere. Marry one. There's a job out there. Get one. It's not this snowflake, unique, fingerprint, special calling. You know what that leads to? Paralysis. How do I know? How do I know? How do I know? And then she goes on to do the the whole Steve Jobs thing. She says, the best way to succeed is discover what you love. And then find a way to offer it to others in the form of service, working hard. I agree with all that. Then she adds this really helpful final thought. Also allowing the energy of the universe to guide you. Oh, the energy of the universe has guided a lot of people to coffee shops where they sit and think about what their fingerprint snowflake job is. This is not helpful. This is not helpful, Oprah. And so Oprah's site is filled with testimonials because she's big on this. Oh, chase your dream. Walk away from it. And she's got testimonials of people that she makes heroes out of because they walked away from a good job and had the courage to do what everyone should do. Easy to say for a millionaire. Some of us need to work jobs, Oprah. But these are, these are the heroes who walked away from a good job to chase their dream of what they love. So here's one testimony. The first time I took a class in a professional dance setting, I started to cry. Good, because you're going to be poor. You're going you're gonna to cry a lot when the bills come in. Now, now she says, parenthesis, happy tears, of course. Why? Because actually doing it felt so right. Oh my. Let me tell you what's wrong with all this chatter about what feels so right, whether it's a a relationship or a job. And I'll use my own personal testimony. At 19 years old, do you know what felt right to Brad Bigney? I wanted to be a medical doctor. I love biology. I love chemistry. I love people. I love money. (laughs) I was like, I'll pick something. I think you make money and I like people and I like biology. I like chemistry. Those were my passions. Those were my dreams, those were my loves. And so I headed at the, into University of Tennessee in pre-med. And towards the end of my sophomore year, as God interrupted, that's exactly what it felt like, interrupted my dreams and my loves and my passions and was strongly telling me to be a pastor, I didn't, it did not feel right. It felt nauseous. It felt fearful. It felt wrong. I, I pushed back. I said no. I told him no. Multiple times. I was sitting there trying to study for a biology final. And I finally said, God, if you will leave me alone, because I want to make an A on this thing, I'll talk to you over Christmas break. Okay, bye. (laughs) But to my credit, I did talk to him over Christmas break. And he still said, I want you to be a pastor. I had never thought about, I know there's little boys that say, from seven years old, when I heard a missionary, I thought, I want to be that. I did not. I never thought about being a pastor, never thought about being a missionary, never thought those were my gifts, never laid away in my bed dreaming about that, ever. So I said yes, not because it felt right. And I went to Bible college, and I was there for four years. And then when I got my first church job, I got my first real job after telling that man in the interview, no, five times. Five times I told him no. Because this pastor was wanting to hire me as a youth and music pastor. And I had just spent four years on campus watching other guys drive off in little vans and work with youth. And I said, I'm, 
I never want to be a youth pastor. Ever. Ever. When? Ever. I don't like being dirty. I don't like staying up late. I don't like going all night. I don't like shave cream on me. I don't like people around me. I don't, I don't like any of that. I never want to be a youth pastor. And oh, by the way, little thing, I can't read music. This is old school, you guys. This is organ and a piano. And the guy out front does this and it means something. You're not just checking mattresses. This, this has something to do with the meter. This is three, four time. This is six, eight time. I'm like... No, there's a choir I'm supposed to lead with four parts, alto, soprano. No. So I met with him and I said, no. He said, don't say no, pray about it. I came back and said, no. He said, don't say no, pray about it. We did that five times. And I was on my knees next to my bed in my dorm when I believed God told me to say yes. Did it feel right? I felt like throwing up. It felt obedient. And I said, Yes. And oh my goodness. I, I, I'm not exaggerating. June 1986, I started working this job, driving from Brook Pines apartment to the church. And every morning for three months, I could have rolled down my window and barfed down the side of my car. <laughs> What's all that on the side of your car? That's breakfast. This is how I feel every morning. I'm so scared. I feel so inadequate. I don't have this feels right. I have this feels terrifying. And not, and, but oh, it gets worse. Or better. I stay there four years. I'm not a guy that likes change. So I stay. And guess what happens? What I touched on earlier. I get better at this. I settle in. I feel more comfortable. I actually like it to some degree. Ten years I did that. While young guys like me, typically, what do they do next? They become a senior pastor. So as all my friends became senior pastors and would call back at the church, say, Brad, when are you going to be a senior pastor? Never. Never. Oh, I don't want the buck to stop on my desk. I don't want all those responsibilities. I don't want all those problems. I see who takes the hit. It's him. When people come to me, I can say, I ain't the main guy. I didn't make that decision. Go talk to him. All bad decisions are coming from that main office, senior pastor. It all rides on him, and I don't want to be him. I said that over and over and over. And then in 1995, I said yes to being a senior pastor because it felt so right. I was terrified. And I loaded my very pregnant, eight and a half month pregnant wife into a Taurus with three little kids. And we drove over here to start meeting in Turkey Foot Middle School with 35 or 40 adults, not because it felt right. There were Sundays we would drive away and Vicky said to me, huh, I don't think it's gonna happen. <laughs> oh, great, because it needs to happen. This is where we've... we've committed we're all in i can't go back they hired somebody else so by the time we left i actually liked that they loved us i loved them we loved our house i was settled in so here's what i want you to hear i'm not standing in front of you today my dreams and loves and what i thought were my gifts and passions at 19 years old have almost nothing to do with where i'm standing today at 54 Feelings didn't lead me here. Love for Jesus. He called me to himself and I'm following him. I'm following him. When it feels right and when it doesn't feel right. When I think it matches my gifts and when it doesn't. Does God ever want to draw you out of a zone where you think, oh, I can do that. Why would I try to do that? Would he ever do that? I was weak. Yes, why? You're more dependent on him. People say to me now, I've been here 21 years, almost 22, and they say, why do you pray? I want to say, why don't you? When other pastors, I'm like, I can't do this. I never wanted to do this. I feel overwhelmed. I pray. And God says, good, good. As we feel dependent and out of our element, we cry out to him in our weakness and his power is made manifest. This is not a story just for pastors, my friends. This is how every believer should be living. When you look back on your life, it shouldn't make perfect sense that every job change had to do with what you thought and what you felt and it fit your gifts and your passions and your dreams. It ought to be a story where you're like, oh my goodness, I never saw that coming. I would have never thought about that, but look what God has done. Your calling is to Jesus more than any particular job or field of service. But don't just hunker down and think, and so I'll be miserable until he returns? No, but you'll be scared. I enjoy to some degree what I'm doing, but I still have a measure of, ha, and I think that's good. 
Number two, working for King Jesus sets you free to serve others instead of just promoting yourself. Sets you free to serve others instead of just promoting yourself. Oh, listen, you don't have to be a born-again Christian in the workplace to spot that person. Those people who are selfish, manipulative, walk across everybody else just to their own advantage. And so look at what Peter says, serving others, doing good works will do in the workplace. Look at verse 15. Because there's a Hannah clause. That by doing good works, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Last week we had that you may adorn the doctrine of our good. Again, your good works aren't your witnessing the gospel. I believe he's talking about your good works on that job. The way you do that job with the attitude you have. And the way you treat everyone else causes them to say, I got to reconsider Christianity. I got to rethink Jesus Christ. I got to rethink what I've always believed. And notice how many times he talks about doing good works that's mentioned in this passage. Look at verse 12. Talks about your good works. Verse 14 talks about those who do good. Verse 15 talks about doing good. And verse 20 talks about when you do good and suffer for it. Now here's the problem. If you're feeling it, if you're thinking, well, I'm confused, Brad. We are a church that believes you are saved, born again, rescued on your way to heaven By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, plus what? So can you be saved by good works? Problem? We've got believers that have heard that message so loudly, they've thrown out good works altogether. Folks, when you come to faith in Christ and he lives in you, then good works should show up. In fact, if they don't, you can put a question mark over whether you were ever born again to begin with. Does this make sense? That's why James chapter 2 says, oh yeah, it's all about faith. But if your saving faith doesn't produce good works in you, not as a means of earning his favor, but because you know him and Jesus lives in you, something's not right. Does that make sense? If you still look like everybody else, will we be perfect? No. Should you be different? Should some good works show up that other people are like, how do you do that? Why would you do that? Yes. Yes, good works. God uses powerfully in our world. Last week in Titus 2, we had his own special people, verse 14, Titus 2, zealous for good works. After you come to Christ, your life, you ought to be looking for ways to do good works in your job, in your community, towards other people. Listen, for a moment, I want you to stop thinking about What you do, whatever your job is, get it in your head right now, wherever you work. Now, I want you to think about the people around you as you do it. You might work from home, and so there's not many, but you're on the phone sometimes, or you have a meeting in a restaurant. You're probably engaged with people at some point in your job. Think about the people around you as you do your job. You might work long hours dealing with people constantly, but listen to me. Is it possible that you've started viewing people around you, whether it's your family, coworkers, clients, as nothing more than props to help you reach your personal goals? Christians should be the ones that still see people as people. That's not just my assistant. That's not just a coworker. That's not just a... That's a real person created in the image of God with an eternal day. And so you... Love them and serve them and sometimes put yourself out for them. Go out of your way to do something for them that there was no advantage to you. And they would say, why? Because I'm supposed to love God and love my neighbors myself. Serving other people in the workplace is a radical attention getter. Because our world is looking out for number one themselves. Listen to me. Using other people and living for yourself eventually leads to living by yourself as Christians we should be living for the glory of God by loving others around us in a New York Times article a few years ago Gordon Marino wrote an article titled a life beyond do what you love I don't know that he's a believer I don't think he is he says in the article he takes to task this whole concept that you got to do what you love in fact, he says the whole concept, you've got to do what you love, you love, has actually degraded, degraded the dignity of work. He says, quote, 
The do-what-you-love ethos that is so ubiquitous in our culture is in fact elitist because it degrades work that is not done from love. I gotta love it. It also ignores that the idea that work itself possesses an inherent value. Well, there's a biblical concept in the New York Times. How about that? Unbelievers stumble onto truth sometimes. Work itself has inherent value. Why? We've been talking about it. Because God's a worker and he created us in, in his image. And there's value in work. And it degrades it when it's this, unless you love what you're doing, it's meaningless. And he illustrates it this way. Something that we don't see much of today. And maybe we're not going to see any of it pretty soon. If our culture keeps going down this path. If it's all about me and I've got to love it. Listen to what he says about his father. He says, quote, my father didn't do what he loved. He labored at a job he detested so that he could send his children to college. Was he just unenlightened and mistaken to put the well-being of others above his own personal interests? Getting outside of yourself enough to put your own passions aside for the benefit of a larger circle, be it your family or society, does not come naturally. No, it doesn't. But for Christians, we ought to see more of it. He says, but the universally recognized paragons of humanity, the Nelson Mandela's, the Dietrich Bonhoeffer's, the Martin Luther King Jr.'s did not organize their lives around self-fulfillment and bucket lists. They simply did what they felt they had to do. Well, there's a concept. It shouldn't be all wrapped around and organized around our self-fulfillment and bucket list. What is God calling you to do next for his glory? What needs to be done next? And you may have no idea whether you'd love it or not, but you can do it for the one you do love as an opportunity to adorn the doctrine of our great God. And you just might see God use you greatly in an area you would have never Ever scripted for yourself. Number three, working for King Jesus sets you free to trust God regardless of how you're being treated in that workplace. Look at verse 18 and 19 again. It's like he, he foresees and anticipates exactly what's going on out there. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle. Maybe you'll get a supervisor like that every now and then. But your chances of working a lifetime for decades in the workplace and always having someone who's kind and reasonable I do believe is zero. And he's telling us we've got reasons to work the same way with the same attitude regardless of who the immediate human supervisor is. Reasonable, kind, great. That does make it easier. Harsh, cruel, I can still do it because I work for who? King Jesus. For this is commendable if because of conscience towards God you endure. And here's what I think is interesting. Twice, This is commendable is used in two verses. Do you know what the literal Greek says as I dug into it? Literally, this is grace. This is charis. What's he mean? This is when you're getting grace. This is evidence of grace. How can you do this? Who does this? They don't. Nobody does this without the grace of God. The grace of God is most evident when you're in a harsh place and you're not being encouraged and you're not being rewarded like you should and you keep doing it because you work for who? This is grace. This is, last week I said you've got a power, right? For the grace of God has appeared to all men. You've got the grace of God and a hope outside of the workplace. This is commendable. This is commendable in the sight of God. And I want you to notice how our conduct as as workers in the workplace, even when we're being abused or not recognized as we would like, is tied to Jesus Christ. So again, don't put a period and say, oh, he was talking about authorities and work, and now he's talking about the cross of Jesus Christ. These things go together. The Bible never says, oh, do this and don't do this. Why? I'm not going to tell you. Just do it. The Bible almost always frames it up with why. How can I do this? On what basis? He is tying our work ethic of working hard even for people that might be unkind and unreasonable to how Jesus worked for you on the cross. Did he suffer? Was he maligned? Was he reviled? 
Was he slandered? Was he? So watch what he does. Notice verse 21. For to this you were called. So again, it's not to a particular job. You're called to follow Christ and to respond the same way he did when he was abused. For to this you were called. Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. And you don't have to guess. You say, okay, I want to I follow the example of Christ. I wish he'd been more specific. What would that look like? He is specific. Look at verse 23. In verse 23, he tells you two things Jesus did not do when he was reviled. And one thing he never stopped doing. First thing he did not do. When he was reviled, some of your translations say hurl insults, right? Does that happen? Hurling insults at you. He didn't revile back. Second thing he didn't do, when he suffered, did not threaten. But here's what I really want you to get. Not so much what he didn't do. We can work on that. Don't revile back. Don't threaten. What did he do, Brad? But committed himself to him who judges righteously. The NIV says, entrusted himself to him who judges justly. The New American Standard, I think, gets it right. Kept on entrusting himself to him. The reason the New American Standard worded it that way is because the verb tense right there is the imperfect, which means it's an ongoing process. It's a repeated process. It's not done. Jesus, his entire ministry, while he was misunderstood and maligned and slandered, but particularly on the cross, kept on entrusting him. His, His disciples fled. They abandoned him. So many people left him. He kept on entrusting himself to him who judges righteously saying, you know God, you see, and you will make all things right. That's what we have to do in the workplace. You keep entrusting, and that word entrust in the Greek means to hand over to someone else the responsibility and care of something. Well, it's not so much the responsibility of care of something, it's someone, you. I give my life. When, When he calls you to follow him, you no longer own your life. You, give, you say, God, it would be lovely if I get recognized and encouraged. But if not, I'm not my own. I'm yours. I am entrusting. And so something hard happens at work and, oh, it hurts. And the flesh rears up. And you get through it and you entrust yourself to God. And you say, okay, I don't have to argue. I don't have to go on a campaign defending myself. God, you know. You see. And you'll make all things right. And things go well for a little while. And, oh, my goodness, something else happens. And you have to do it all over again. Kept on entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. No one else in that place may know the truth. No one else in that place may know who really did what was done. No one else in that place may know that you're being lied about and misrepresented. But the one who matters most does. Entrust yourself to him. Jesus' example is our example. And that leads to, you say, well, is he kind? Is he good? Does he care? Oh, that's my final point. Look, number four, working for King Jesus sets you free to rest in his care. Knowing that your shepherd loves you, even if your supervisors don't. I think it's interesting in a passage like this that's all focused on authorities, rulers, employers, harshness, unreasonableness, abuse, reviling, suffering. There's a lot of names of Jesus. There's a lot of names of God. He brings it back in verse 25. What's he call him? Who do we have? He's a shepherd. We're his sheep. He's going to take care of you. He's your shepherd. And here's what I think is interesting. It says to the shepherd and overseer of our... You were wandering. You're not wandering anymore. You have a shepherd that calls you by name and laid down his life for you and loves you. He is shepherding you in that workplace. Now, he'll let you suffer in ways that you would think, oh, why is the good shepherd doing that? But we've got to trust him. He, he's good. And that word overseer is a word that means someone who protects and perfects someone else. He's a shepherd who is protecting you to the degree he thinks you need protected and perfecting you. 
in the workplace for his glory. You're not alone. You don't need those people there to care for you when you get there. Your shepherd goes with you and you can head into that place loving and giving, expecting how much in return? Which is often what you get. Nothing. See, we should be unlike everybody else that's there with their hand out thinking I can only do as much as I'm rewarded for or recognized for and then I stop. We've had a supernatural power. How do you keep going when you're not recognized? When you're Because we've got a shepherd. We've got an identity in Christ. We've got a power. We've got a hope. We've got direct access to his throne. Who else all throughout the day on the job can fire right up, right then, a prayer and know that the God of the universe hears you and you've got resurrection power in you. You don't have to wait till you get home and call me and say, would you pray for me? I think sometimes we fail to appreciate you can pray right there because your high priest Jesus is already interceding for you and sees it and he's your shepherd and he knows. He sees, he knows, and he's going to make all things right one day. You will be rewarded one day. And I don't know about you, but I'd rather get mine on the other side than right here. You don't have to love what you do. When you understand you've got a new master and a new assignment and new power and new hope. If you're here and you're a Christian, yes, Jesus set you free to head into the workplace with a radically different motivation that's not connected to job circumstances or my particular calling and passion or compensation or coworkers. But that workplace freedom is a result of a greater freedom. You do not ever have workplace freedom until you experience a greater freedom from your biggest problem, which is your sin problem, not a workplace problem. And so I think it's interesting in this passage, Peter brings back into view, because we're down in the trenches saying, but my supervisor's harsh and cruel and unreasonable. He brings back into view, your biggest problem is your sin problem. Look at it in verse 24. Verse 24, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. If you're a Christian, thank God that he set you free from your biggest problem, your sin problem, so that you can go into the workplace and work radically different. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I don't want you to give another thought to workplace place ethics. I want you to think about Jesus. Come to Christ. Come to Christ. You'll never have a freedom in the workplace till you have freedom from your biggest sin problem through Jesus Christ, your Savior. Oh God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the help that you give us for real stuff like jobs and difficult people and suffering and insults and unreasonableness. Oh, God, live through us. Not perfectly, but God, may there be something different about us. Your own special people zealous for good works because we work for King Jesus. And it's in his name we pray, amen.